0: Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good to have you folks here this morning as we gather together to worship the Lord. It is the Lord's day and we take time to gather together. We welcome, uh, Don and Marlene this morning with us. It's so good to see them again. It's good to see Don, of course, too, but Marlene is back with us and just the Lord has been so kind and gracious and here she is with us again, having gone through a uh, time of, uh, physical needs, and so on. So we just welcome you, and it's good to have you back with us. Indeed, it is our pleasure to have Don Theobald with us this morning. I'll ask him to come now to read the Scripture for us and to lead us in prayer. Don, if you would, please. Well, it is a real blessing and privilege
1: to be here this weekend. I want to thank you so, so much for your prayers um, last week fall my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, had surgery in December and radiation this year and uh, she's coming along fine. She'll have a follow-up mammogram the end of October, early November and so we thank the Lord for your prayers and your fellowship and your kindness. Added to all this we just last week bought a house. We live in Hamilton in Binbrook so now we got to pack up 24 years, well, 50 years of marriage, but 24 years of stuff in that house. <clears throat> and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but we'll be living uh, very close to two of our children and their families. I don't know if they're thrilled, but we're thrilled. <laughs> we will try to be wise old people as we um, uh, navigate that with them, but we're very, very thankful to the Lord. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin to read at verse 27 and read into chapter 2 down to the end of verse 3. And I'm reading from the ESV. Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work. That he had done in creation. May God bless the word as it was read, and may it be buried deep in our hearts by the Spirit. Let's bow our heads in our hearts and uh, let us seek the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for a new day of grace and of mercy and beauty and kindness. We thank you for the changing of the seasons, and we thank you for the warmth and the growth of the summertime. We thank you, Father, that um, your spirit is still working very powerfully, that he is working in this world today not not only to sustain the creation, but to bring about the new creation that was brought into existence because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all over the world today, there are your children praising and worshiping, and serving and even suffering for the sake of Jesus. And we gladly add our voices and our amen with their praise today. And we thank you that there may be to us a cacophony of sound and languages, but to you it is a sweet aroma that you delight in. We thank you that you are kind and good, and we thank you that uh, every good and perfect thing comes from you. We thank you that as you continue to draw people from this world to yourself, that uh, you use the gospel. And so that we pray as the word goes out today, not only here in Sudbury, but throughout our province and our country and the world at large, that uh, you will be pleased by your spirit to produce faith and that many will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We thank you for your good work of grace with many of us here today, but there are some here who do not know the Savior, and we pray that you might work even today, that this might be uh, the first day of their eternal life, and that you'd be kind and, and create in them a new heart, one that hates sin and loves Jesus. Father, we pray. There's well, I don't know the congregation. We do pray for um, the well-being of this fellowship. We pray for those who may be traveling on vacation that you will keep them safe. We pray that even today they might be able to find a place of worship and be able to exalt and magnify the Savior. We we pray, Father, that you will bless those who may be because of health or other circumstances are shut in today, and we pray either through the feed here or TV ministry that uh, you will bless them. May they have time in the word, and may they have time at the throne of grace. And we pray, Father, we pray for our country. We thank you for uh, the leaders that you have put over us. We pray that you will give the prime minister and the members of parliament wisdom. May you restrain evil intentions, May you continue to work everything together for the good of your church. We pray for the premier of the province and the members of the Ontario legislature. May you bless these men and women and be gracious to us. And we pray, Father, for local uh, mayors and uh, members of uh, city council. And we pray that you might be pleased to give peace to our land so that the gospel will go out. We do not ask for an easy life, but we do ask for uh, opportunity to worship and to witness and to minister grace to people and truth. We praise you that we can be here today, and we thank you for uh, the gathering of your people. We thank you that the Spirit is in our midst. We thank you for the Word of God, and we gladly put ourselves under its sweet authority We pray for the children and junior church and uh, Sunday school earlier that you would use your word to penetrate the defenses even of their young hearts and that they would call upon the Savior. And so as we continue to worship, may your spirit energize us. We offer up all of our worship as a sacrifice of praise, but we offer it through the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we worship. Amen.
0: Again, we welcome our brother Don here this morning in our prayer that he will bless you as you open the word to us. Thank you.
1: Well, it really is a blessing and a privilege to be here. We've uh, had the privilege over the years when Pastor Brad was here, and uh, we love you very much, and uh, Riala and Iris have been dear friends, and Braden as well. And uh, we do pray that the Lord in his kindness and in his timing will send you a shepherd after his own heart that can lead you into green pastures and beside still waters of his word. But I'm sure the Lord has been blessing you in the meantime, and it is a real blessing for us to be here today and tonight. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to the second book of the New Testament, The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2, and I'm going to begin to read verse 23 down to the end of verse 28. One Sabbath, he, that is the Lord Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, look. the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the, Lord, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, let's seek the favor of God before we dive into his word. Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of having the scriptures. We thank you for the great privilege of having them in our own language. We thank you for freedom to gather and assemble and to worship. And we thank you for the presence of your spirit. We are utterly dependent upon him. And so we ask that he would, in a sense, come in and declutter our minds from the things that would preoccupy us and distract us. And he would enable us to focus on your word so that it might bring blessing to us and praise and worship to Jesus. We ask for the glory of the triune God. Amen. We find ourselves this morning in the Gospel of Mark. While it is the second gospel in the New Testament, it actually was the very first gospel to be written. And not only was it the first gospel to be written, but it is actually the shortest of the four gospels to be written. And it was written by a man who was an associate of the Apostle Paul, who was a relative of Barnabas and had many, many ministry opportunities down through his life in terms of sharing the gospel. Uh, The church father, Papias, says that uh, Mark was the Apostle Peter's interpreter. And what he is saying there is really that, that Mark, in a sense, got his material from, of course, the great Apostle Peter who was uh, one of the first apostles to be called by Jesus, and, of course, was part of that inner circle of James and John and Peter that were, in a sense, the Lord's confidence. Um, And, of course, Peter is the first one who preaches the great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and also Peter is the one who first preaches to the Gentiles and uh, the gospel going out from Jerusalem ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, the Gospel of Mark is a very interesting gospel because it begins when Jesus is about 30 years of age. It begins with his public ministry. It begins with uh, first John the Baptist, the forerunner of our Savior, and then very quickly into the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus probably ministered for about three to three and a half years, and uh, around 33 or so, as you know, was arrested, was tried, and was found guilty, was executed, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Now, what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that it's pretty action-packed. It, it moves along very quickly. Um, there's an adverb in Greek, it's euthos. But it is a word that means immediately, right away, straightforward. And uh, I would have flunked English grammar back when I was a kid in school if I used the same word 41 times in in a paragraph or a story. But obviously, under the inspiration of the scriptures, uh, Mark is showing us that this, this man, Jesus, is a man of action. He is a man of doing. There are some blocks of teaching, but not a lot. Not like Mark or John or even Luke. And so Jesus is a man who's on the move, who is busy with his father's business, who has come with the divine intention to bring in and to establish the kingdom, the reign and the rule of God in a fallen, cursed world. What's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that there's 16 chapters, and the first eight chapters, there's a sense that Mark is revealing that Jesus is trying to not overly reveal himself. When he casts out demons, he tells them to shh. I was going to say, shut up, but the children are gone. But that's what he was saying to them. Be quiet. Don't say a word. When he healed various people, he said, now, don't say anything to anybody. And, of course, often they had to tell people because they used to walk like I did, and now they walk perfectly. They used to be blind, and now they see. They used to be deaf, and now they hear. And um, some of them used to be dead, and now they're alive. And so for the first uh, eight chapters, in a sense, Jesus is kept hidden in one sense. And then in chapter 8, Jesus asks the disciples, who do the crowds say I am? And they say, well, Time Magazine says this, Newsweek says that, you know, the Toronto Star says this. And then he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter, on behalf of the 12, says, you are the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And then from that point in chapter 8 to the end of the book, there's great revelation of who this is. Now, what's interesting is that in chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us up front who Jesus is. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, begin, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, What happens very, very quickly is that as Jesus begins to preach and teach and heal, you can imagine uh, his popularity, Uh, the crowds just flock to him. Uh, This is amazing. No one has the wisdom that this man has. No one has the mighty power that this man has, that he's able to merely touch a person and they're healed merely take a little dead girl's hand and touch it and say, be alive, and she's alive. This is astounding. There, there has never been power like this revealed since the creation of the world when God himself merely spoke and all of these things came into existence. Now, the crowds, the popularity, you know, all that kind of thing is going to bring with it conflict and confrontation. And we find ourselves in the passage I just read in the midst of the fourth conflict of five that, that Mark gives at the early part of the book. There'll be more conflict later in the book, as you know, that will lead up to eventually his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, and so on. Now... We don't like conflict. I hope most of us don't. I, I'm a pretty peace-loving guy. Um, I think my wife would say that. Maybe some mornings I'm a little grouchy. But other than that, um, most of us don't. We, we're just getting by ourselves. We hardly want to have you know, a good uh, row with somebody else as we're trying to work through the Christian life. But the Lord Jesus Christ because of the words that he preached and because of the things that he did, he he got into conflict, not with the Roman authorities, not with the crowds in general, but with the religious leaders, the the Jewish people who, believe it or not, were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. These guys were amazing. They had much of the Old Testament memorized. They could tell you what the middle verse in the Old Testament was. Remember, they're reading Hebrew, so they're doing it backwards even. And they could tell you what the middle verse of the, uh, what the middle word of the middle verse was, and the middle letter of the middle word of the middle verse. They, these guys were just walking encyclopedias. They didn't have to Google this stuff. And, and the, the, they not only had all of this great head knowledge, they could have, one Bible trivia pursuit every time, even on Jeopardy. But they endeavored to live a meticulous life. They had learned the lesson from Israel back in the Old Testament, who because of their sloppiness in living for God went into captivity. And they were determined that that would never happen again. And so not only they were they themselves seeking to live a very religious life, but they kind of were like the religious theological police. Um, they're kind of like, especially if it's a girl, the oldest sister in a family. They're going to keep the other kids in line. And when Jesus comes, they began to check them out. Now, the irony of it is that Jesus has tried to keep himself in his head hidden, hidden because he knows that people, like our brother read in Sunday school, uh, he knows that lots of people will flock to Jesus for the blessings. But they don't like the suffering. They don't like the difficulty. And imagine you're sitting down with four or five thousand of your closest friends. Nobody has lunch. And Jesus is able to host the whole thing. Imagine you never knew at a funeral where there would actually be a burial. Wouldn't that be wonderful? People merely touch the hem of his garment and they would be healed. Who wouldn't want a savior like that? And it's interesting, even in the present day, there are people who marketed Jesus, who, you know, if you do this right, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and so on. But the other side of it is that this gospel is radically different from the world around us. Radically different because you see, to be, a blessed, to be blessed by this gospel and this Jesus, you have to come out with your hands up. You, you have to be frisked down to make sure that you're not trusting in any righteousness of your own, but you're trusting fully on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know we're all hardwired because of the fall for works. We're thinking that we get by on how well we're doing. So conflict begins because this Jesus will take a prostitute off the street and bless her and forgive her and make her a child of the king. And a religious holy person, he'll say, you're not even close So that brings us to this inevitable conflict. And and I don't know if you've noticed that sometimes the nicest people you know get the most angry when Jesus is brought up. They don't mind talking about God. They don't even mind talking about what a mess the world's in. Yes, we need more civility, more this, more that. more. But, oh, don't mention Jesus. Don't mention Jesus. Because it, it... Riles the dander doesn't it now we're in the fourth of these conflicts and these conflicts are designed to reveal to us who Jesus really is and to show that Jesus Christ the heart of the gospel is the son of God now as we come to this passage we want to see three things the accusation the argumentation then about one or one fifteen, we'll see the announcements. First of all, the accusation. We find that in verses 23 and 24. We find out it it is Saturday. It's Saturday morning. The Sabbath, of course, is the seventh day, and that is uh, Saturday. If you look at your calendar, even to this present day, the week begins on Sunday. We call it the weekend, but it's really the week beginning. Okay, and, and so we don't know why or what's happened with the alarm clock didn't go off or the rooster was out doing something else, but it looks like these guys slept in. And they're on their way to synagogue or church, and they hadn't had breakfast. And so as they're going, maybe taking a shortcut to get to synagogue or church, and they're walking through a farmer's field and there would be paths. Remember when the sower sowed the seed, some fell on the, the path. And there would be paths through. And um, as they're going through, some of the disciples, they there was standing wheat. They'd grab a thing of wheat and they would uh, take it. Then they'd rub it in their hands and they'd blow some of the chaff away. And voila, they had granola. <laughs> and so they, they had something in their stomachs. So when the preacher was preaching that Saturday, he wouldn't hear all this growling of stomachs. Now he hears the beeping of devices, but back then it would be the growling of, of stomachs. Now, in verse 24, somebody else was going to church that day, and they were called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, that wasn't a rock group or a, or a motorcycle gang. Um, the Pharisees were a reactionary group that grew up after Israel comes back out of captivity into the promised land. The word Pharisee means separated ones. And What these guys, and I assume their gals, their wives, what they did was that they were determined never again would Israel be taken out of the promised land and go back into captivity. But they would live meticulously. As I said, they had most of the Bible memorized. It was easy, of course, it was just the Old Testament. You know how easy that is to memorize the Old Testament. Okay, and um, they um, they not only, in, you know, kind of memorized the Bible, but they tried to live the Bible, and they tried to make sure that you would never break the Old Testament by adding even more laws and rules than the Bible had. Now that's pretty holy, isn't it? When I was saved at 17 out of a non-Christian home, um, I started going to the local Baptist church, what I'm very grateful to the Lord for. And um, <clears throat> they said that if you're a good Christian, you do not go to the movies. You do not smoke. You do not drink. Uh, I was saved in 66, so you certainly don't listen to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or anything like that. And again, I'm not advocating any of that. I don't even drink tea or coffee. So I'm really fenced in well. Uh, The only time I went to the movies was with another man's wife, my mother. (laughs) (laughs) And we would watch such steamers as My Fair Lady, um, Mary Poppins, uh, A Man for All Seasons, movies like that, so... And they meant well. But the problem was, instead of saying, don't go to X-rated movies, they said, don't go to movies. You can never see a sinful movie if you never see a movie. You see what they're doing? And um, we need to be careful. Now, What happens in verse 24 is that as the disciples were having granola that morning before church, the Pharisees noticed that they had grabbed some wheat, rubbed it in their hands, blew away the chaff and chowed down. And they came to Jesus and they said, look it, why are they your disciples? doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now you have to understand here, hes they're not coming to him like a farmer might come to parents, knock at the door and say, hey, you know what? Your boy was over, he climbed our fence and stole apples out of our orchard. What's going on here? What is interesting is that The law of God, the law of Moses said this, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. That's in the Mosaic law. So what it meant is if you're walking through, going somewhere, and you want a handful of granola, the Bible says go for it. But as I mentioned, these Pharisees, they were very, very concerned about the Sabbath and about pleasing God and about doing everything right. There's a fourth commandment. Does anyone know what that commandment is? You shall not. Well, actually, it says you shall work for six days, and then do no work on the seventh day. But it's kind of an open-ended, what is no work? It's clear if you work at General Motors, or if you work at a mine, or if you're a school teacher, it's pretty clear there's a break from you know, the factory where your work is, and not working. But you know what these Pharisees did? They had 39 categories for working that violates the Sabbath. The third category was what the disciples did. Because when they grabbed that wheat, that was reaping or harvesting. When they rubbed it in their hands, that was threshing. And when they, that was winnowing. Amazing. I wouldn't have come up with that for love or money. Now, what's the big deal? Well, you see, each of the covenants that God gave Israel had a covenant sign. With Abraham, it was circumcision. Okay? Okay? The Mosaic law and the covenant sign was the Sabbath. The world didn't keep the Sabbath. Excuse me. And um, the people of God, one of the things that separated them from the world was that on the seventh day, they ceased from their work. And that was a covenant sign. In the Old Testament, if you deliberately broke the Sabbath, it was a capital offense, which meant you would have the death penalty. So you can see that the Pharisees are coming for the kill, aren't they? They're not coming to Jesus and said, you know, on the way to church today, the sign said 50 kilometers and you were 53. You need to watch that. What they were saying is that you cannot be the Messiah. These guys cannot be men of God. Your mission cannot be anointed of God because the most basic of commands, they're violating. And they're worthy of death. Now you might think, boy, big deal. But supposing you're married. And you're a guy, and you come home one day, and your wife's just steaming at you, takes off her wedding ring and throws it at you. Is that a big deal? Of course it is. Because you see, this is a covenant sign. And so to take that ring off and throw it in your face is, in a sense, repudiating the marriage covenant that you entered into. And so what the Pharisees are saying is, look, at you guys, don't try to fool us that you're the people of God and that this is the Messiah that we've been looking for. You don't even keep the covenant sign. Well, that's the accusation. And to violate that sign deliberately and willfully is a capital offense punishable by death. Moving to the second point, the argumentation. Now, by argumentation, I don't say, Jesus said, I I am not, you are. You guys are just idiots. You don't know what you're doing. Obviously, they've been accused, Jesus has been accused of violating the Old Covenant, which is very, very serious. Because Israel was accused of violating the old covenant again and again and again, eventually went into captivity, didn't they? The northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. So God isn't fooling around. This isn't just fun stuff. This is serious. In verse 25, Jesus begins his argumentation. Now, he's been accused of breaking the Bible and and again if they accuse me of breaking the bible i'm guilty but if jesus is guilty of breaking the bible there's no salvation not a bit of salvation so jesus says and i love this phrase because he uses it often in the bible And he usually uses it with the religious people who, remember, got most of this stuff memorized. He says in verse 25, have have you ever read the Bible? Boy, that hurt. I was saved in 1966. In 1968, I went to Bible college, at least from 68, I hope from 66. I've been reading and studying the Bible. And I've been preaching and teaching the Bible for 45 years. And can you imagine after the service, Riel comes up and says, Don, have you ever read the Bible? And he goes to these Pharisees, and he says, have you guys ever read the Bible? And you and I have to ask ourselves the very same question, because Jesus is always asking me, Don, have you ever read the Bible? Now, you can read or you can read. There's some of us that have devotions every day and we read a chapter or two of the Bible. But maybe we didn't read the Bible. So he says um, in verse 25, have you ever read the Bible? For example, 1 Samuel 21 verses 1 to 6. Now, most of you got that memorized, right? Right? you know exactly where I'm referring to and what I'm referring to. And we'd think, what's Jesus doing? Just playing mind games with these guys and he's just kind of, you know, kind of boxing them into a corner? No. He wants to show them how to read the Bible. He says, have you ever read First Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6? And probably most of those guys could, yep, I know that. I know it backwards because it's Hebrew. But you may not have it on the tip of your tongue. So I'll just kind of summarize what he's referring to. He says, "Um, there's a guy named David in the Old Testament. He was a shepherd boy. One day, God sent a prophet whose name was Samuel to have a party and then they anointed David, as shepherd boy, to be the king of Israel. Remember that story? But there's a little technicality. Israel already had a king and his name was King Saul. The people had chosen King Saul. God had rejected him. Now, there were lots of wars during King Saul's time and one day he's fighting the Philistines and there's this big burly guy who comes out every day and says, hey, you know, want a piece of me? I'll eat you for lunch. And even the great King Saul who was head and shoulders over everybody else was terrified, wasn't he? And then one day, this little boy, shepherd boy, probably, you know, 13, 14, 15, shows up with the pickup. He's got all kinds of food and stuff for his brothers and the troops. And he's hearing this guy growling out there, you want a piece of me? You think you're so tough? And David said, what the was going on here? And they told him the story. You know, the king's promised his daughter in marriage, the guy that would go out there and whoop that guy. And and David says, man, you guys, day after day, allow that guy to talk about God the way he does? So David goes to the king and says, "Uh, I'll go. And the king says, well, okay, but you better take my armor. And of course, he tries it on and it doesn't fit. So he says, don't worry about it. You know, I have a God who looks after me. And when I was shepherd, uh, bears would attack, lions would attack the sheep. And God always delivered me. I think we can take this guy. And you know the story, don't you? Well, Goliath dies, his head's cut off. King Saul puts David in the government and uh, in the army, and they have ticker tape parades, and they, all the pretty girls are saying, "David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can." Yeah. And so, King Saul's getting a little ticked off. He's caught because every time this guy goes to war, he wins. But every time he goes to war and wins, he's got all you know the ticker tape parade and the pretty girls cheering him and all that stuff. And King Saul goes into fits of depression and rage. And every once in a while, we'll just because uh, David's one of those sickening people. Have you ever met a person like that who can do everything? You know, um, he's not only a great soldier, but he's a masterful musician. This guy can play instruments. He can compose music. He can. He's one of those guys, like when you and I went to high school, and remember graduation day, and you and I waddled through, and they gave us a piece of paper. And then they gave the awards. And now, citizen of the year, Johnny, he comes up. Now, athlete of the year, Johnny comes up. Academic of the year, Johnny comes up. Helping old ladies. Johnny comes up. He can do everything. Eh? And you just sit there and you look at your piece of paper and you think, well, this never ends. Well, David's one the, he's a renaissance man. He can do absolutely everything. The guy's astounding. Well, anyways, King Saul's had about enough, and he puts out on milk cartons and telephone poles. He says, have you seen this man? Wanted, dead or alive. So, David and his group it's it's you know spears have come at him, and everything, and so he takes off with his men, and he goes to place Nob, which is south of Jerusalem, and where the tabernacle is and they 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 didn't even pack heat, they forgot their swords, they didn't make provisions, they just had to take off, and so they stop at the tabernacle. And uh, David says to the priest, hey, you guys got any food here? And they said, yes, we've got 12 loaves of bread. And David says, great, but just a minute. Those are the show bread, the presentation bread. We bake it fresh every Sabbath and put it on display to show the provision of the Lord for his people. And then the old loaves, which are still good, are only to be eaten by the priests, not the common folk. And David says, well, that'll do. And so he and his men ate the priest's showbread, and then they took off. Now what in the world has that got to do with grain, granola, church, and Sabbath?
2: Were these men
1: censored? Were they criticized? Did God condemn them? (laughs) The astounding thing is that David, who did this kind of thing, would become Israel's greatest king. The kingdom would flourish under him. In fact, one of the names for the Messiah would be what? son of David. He's bringing in the kingdom of God and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. Hmm. What in the world is Jesus doing? Is he just tying these guys in knots? You know, my grandchildren are getting older and they figure out I'm mostly senile anyways, but When they were younger, they would say something like, um, I'm going to have a piece of cake. And I'd say, I'm going to have a piece of cake? No, me. I'm going to have, and I would go, me, I'm having it. And they would get so frustrated because I'm just using their words and always turning them around. So you're the problem. Oh, you're the problem. Is that what Jesus is doing here? No. You remember his question? Do you know how to read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? So what's he saying? He's saying this, never go to the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and look for a list of rules, what you can do and what you can't do and this and that and the other thing. He's saying what you need to do when you go to the Old Testament is you're always looking for Jesus. The Old Testament from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi is saying coming soon to this planet is a savior who's out of this world. The Old Testament is not an end in itself. You're not like the guy who stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum, and said, What a good boy am I? The Old Testament was not given so that you and I might see how good we are. It's the very opposite. I'm to see how bad I am, how sinfully bad I am, how desperately I need somebody who's greater than Adam, who's greater than Abraham, who's greater than Moses, and might I say greater than David, wiser than Solomon, has a more powerful deliverance than even Jonah, who was in the belly of the whale. When you go to the Old Testament, you're looking for all the pointers and the indicators that are telling you soon to this planet will be a savior who's out of this world. You remember when James and John and Peter were on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Eliza, Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophet, they were talking with Jesus and Peter said, this is great, let's make three tents. And God, you know, said, no, shut that down. This is my beloved son, You listen to him. You see, what the Pharisees were doing was making the Old Testament an end in itself. Instead of seeing that it had all kinds of pointers and indicators that you would recognize Jesus when he came... You see, the irony of the whole thing is that the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Bible. And what Jesus does from that story is say, me and my disciples are the fulfillment of the Bible. Just as David and his men were hungry as they carried out the mission of God and the ministry of God, so I and my disciples are hungry as we carry out the mission and the ministry of God. And they had nothing to say. That's astounding. Now, very quickly, the announcements. Not the kind we had at the beginning of the service, but the announcements that Jesus has. There are two announcements about the Sabbath. The first one has to do with man, with people, with the human race. Look what he says in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What's he saying there? He said, well, if you knew how to read your Bible, you would see that men were created on what day? The sixth day. The Sabbath was created on what day? The 7th day. Basic stuff. Now, they were convinced that man was made for the Sabbath. That the purpose of man on this earth is to be cowed and controlled by the Sabbath. But it's the other way around. Man was made first, and one of the blessings that God gave to him was the Sabbath for his good, for his After everything God said, everything that he made was very good, okay? And what, what he's saying here is that I must never act, like there, there are people who think that people exist for animals. Met anybody like that? I worked in a grocery store for seven years and I, we carried out. We were a friendly IGA and we carried people's groceries out. And boy, they, they'd have a dog or something and a kid. And they were terrible with the kid. And, oh, isn't that a cute little dog? And, you know, I'm carrying these big bags of dog food and everything. And, Johnny, sit down and shut up. Oh, isn't he a cute little thing? And, you know, and... um. In fact, our culture thinks the problem with the animal world is people. Have you noticed that? If we weren't around, things would be wonderful. Except for the cows. I guess they do problems that. And the Bible says it's the other way around. God made man as the apex, the, uh, the, the highlight of creation, because only man, men and women, are created in the image of God. And the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made to show man before the fall that there is even something greater than the Garden of Eden. And what is that? The Sabbath. Now, the word Sabbath means to rest, or to stop, or to cease. Be wary of any teaching on the fourth day that even the disciples of Jesus don't even know what they can do and can't do. Oh, can't do this, you can do that. You go, you know, the, the Pharisees, you could walk so many, but if you went a step further, you could do this, but you couldn't do that. You could, and, and, and then. It was nonsense, absolute nonsense. Because you see, this day was intended to be a day of blessing for the people of God. It wasn't to be a straitjacket so they didn't know whether they even could rub their nose or not. Was that work? Was that needless work? And Jesus says, however you approach this subject, Make sure that people are more important than the Sabbath. That the Sabbath is the servant of the people of God. This should be a day of joy, of refreshment, of blessing, of freedom for the people of God. Then the second announcement. So, in verse 28, even so... We talked about man in verse 27, the son of man. Now, who's the son of man? Jesus. You know what Adam's name means, man? Jesus is the second Adam. He's the ideal man. He's the perfect man. He is the obedient son of God. He has never sinned. Can you imagine that? He had sisters, and he never sinned. And I'm not being smart. Imagine being Mary and never once in your life saying, "Jesus, will you stop that? I'm talking to the lady. "Jesus, will you stop bugging your brother? Jesus, will you get to do your homework?" Never once. That alone is miraculous, isn't it? What a Savior, that he comes into this world. He doesn't come in at 30-something, do some miracles, preach some sermons, and dies on the cross. He comes in as a little thing embedded in a virgin's womb. And he goes through all the stages of life. Do you know why? So that I'm a perfect two-year-old in Jesus I was never a terrible team in Jesus. He's my righteousness. And the announcement is this, that even the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what is he saying there? He is saying the Son of Man in his humanity expresses his divine sovereignty and lordship and kingship over absolutely everything on this planet. Every drop of rain that falls, every ray of sunshine, every bug that bugs you, everything is an expression of the sovereignty of the Son of Man. But do you know where his sovereignty is most seen? In the Sabbath. And you might say, well, what? Can I just take a couple more minutes? Hang in there. Do you remember when we read Genesis chapter two? Who kept the Sabbath? Who kept the first Sabbath? Was it Adam? No. Was it Eve? No. Later on, was it Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? No. No. Because remember Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Do you know who kept the first Sabbath? God did. And what God is saying is that even as wonderful as the creation is in the Garden of Eden before the fall, this ain't nothing compared to what I have in store for my people. He didn't say ain't, but... You see, there's a rest for the people of God that only God can provide. Now, what is that rest? it's a ceasing from our labor, from our works, from our endeavors to be right with God and, re- and resting in the finished work. The Lord finished all that he had done and he rested. And you see, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. The very same words as G- Genesis 2. He finished from his works. And that's why a scoundrel on the cross, that thief, says, you know, we deserve what we're getting, buddy, but not this man. And he says, Jesus, as Jesus is dying, he said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Boy, that's faith, isn't it? And Jesus says, yes, today you're going to be with me in paradise because he ceased from his works. Even the worst of scoundrels, it says, well, at least I was nice to my mother. At least I didn't mug old ladies. Well, at least I, we're always trying to say, well, at least I wasn't, well, I'm not always miserable. Well, I'm not always grumpy. Well, I'm, when I was a kid, we had to wash the dishes. There were three boys, no girls. We had to wash the dishes, but my mom never let us wash the good china. Because even the least little chip I know in Beauty and the Beast chip's a star, but in in real life the least little bit of a chip ruins good China cups that she had from her mother and her grandmother before her. And she never let us three bozos wash that stuff. We did the Malmac dishes. And you see the least little Deviation from God's word. And I'm done. I'm done. And you see the Sabbath is good news. Why? Because it's not for people who work and accomplish and stick in their thumb and pull a plum and say, see what a good guy I am? It's for people who come out and say, I've got nothing going for me except Jesus Do you know that the promise of Genesis 2 is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Do you know why he's the Lord of the Sabbath? Because he is the only one on the planet who can give rest from sin and wrath and judgment. Not in a church, not in a baptism, not in eating the Lord's table, not going to a holy man not reading your Bible 12 hours a day. You only come to Jesus and you come with your hands up and you say, frisk me. If I'm trusting in any goodness of my own, expose it because I want the rest that only God can give and he gives it in his son. Oh, I'm glad he's the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm glad he's the one who's able to fulfill that wonderful promise in Genesis 2 that only God did, and only God can do. And you see, the problem with the Pharisees is that they think salvation is something you earn and deserve. Jesus says salvation is something you don't deserve, you can never earn, all you can do is receive it. He picks up this concept in Matthew 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest to your soul. What a salvation. Now, the problem is, and we'll close with this, the problem is you could be saved for many years and still think it's about works. It's not a good day because I didn't have my devotions. It's going to be a good day because I did something. And you see, this is all of grace. All of grace. And that grace is only found in Jesus because he's the Lord of that divine rest that is given to weary sinners. You know, if you're saved, you keep every day as a Sabbath because every day you cease from your works and you rest in the finished work of the Savior. You've been very patient. Call our brother back for our closing hymn, and then our benediction.